Booked where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. Um, proud to bring you the third and final installment in our Booked Live inaugural reading and uh, booked anthology release party. Rob, what was your favorite part of this whole thing? Uh, uh, just like the, are we doing, wait, are we being funny or are we being serious? Oh, either way. Either way. All right. So my funny, all right, I don't have a funny answer yet, but my serious answer is just uh, just being there and, and hanging out with all these authors that are, you know, from all over the place. We got to bring them all together in one room and, and it was kind of our party. So um, I, I Livia, <laughs> Livius and Pela found this out when they were working on the book with me that I get really bossy um, and I like to delegate uh just tasks randomly and um i i was uh <laughs> i was definitely I, I kicked into bossy mode really early on even before we got to the galway arms to the point where uh I, I have a buddy adam who came who came down from oshkosh wisconsin to see the event and <laughs> it's like the worst situation possible for him so he's uh he's uh, got problems with his leg so he's in a wheelchair and <laughs> The Callaway Arms is like the least uh, handicapped accessible place that exists. It's essentially like a three flat walk up. So <laughs> he's calling me when he gets to the the venue, uh, looking for someone to help him up the stairs. And we had a whole bunch of stuff going on, so I was just swamped with stuff. And uh, and um, so <laughs> we're walking over to the event, and I'm like, Helmick, I need you to go help my friend up the stairs." <laughs> and he's like, "But I wanted to get coffee." So anyway, so like for me. My favorite part was being there with everybody and seeing everybody, but then I also kind of got to flex my bossy muscles a little bit. I um, It's funny that you mention Adam, because I was going to mention that one of my uh, favorite things about doing this is getting to meet Adam, who's a longtime listener of the show. We've never met in person because there's a, I don't know, three-hour gap in, uh, in where we live. So um, it was great to have him out there as well as everybody else that um, that came out. It was just a, a terrific turnout, and thank you so much for those of you that took the time to come out and see us. And thanks for buying our book. Yeah, yeah, everybody was great. Um, I guess I don't I don't know. I think her name's Tina. There's a there's someone who does a regular. Um, I don't think it's a reading series, but it's some sort of event that's book related at the uh, Galway Arms, and she was there for the event and we had some minor hiccups with a microphone and she was helping us with it. Oh, and is that who that was? Yeah. Yeah. She's the one that oh. does that regular event there. And, uh, cause I was talking to the guy who runs the place and he was like, Oh, so you got to, to meet, I think her name was Tina. And I was like, Oh, that's who that was. And, and, um, by the time I knew who she was, she had already left. So she was super helpful with the audio setup and everything. And, um, yeah, never really got to, thank her for that so if you happen to listen to this and you happen to be that person who i think is named tina really appreciate all your help uh it, it really made a difference for us yes thank you maybe tina i didn't realize i thought you were just uh, there <laughs> with one of the readers or, or whatever so thank you very much yeah. um so yeah great turnout um god i got signed like a million books which was really weird the first one was really really hard to do 
yeah. Uh, well, I love my signature, so I was uh, just like I love hearing my voice, and I love talking about myself. So just I love so much about me. It was just mm-hmm. one more thing that I could enjoy doing. Uh, you know, people probably think I'm the more conceited of the two of us, which is weird because it's so not the truth. Um, another thing that I think is great was uh, uh, we have some really good photographs. Uh, thanks to Adam, who uh, took a bunch of shots and sent them over to me just today. So those are still going to be sorted through. And to Linda, who uh, is like at every booked event, and she always does a great job of um, being our photographer. So we don't have to be. Indeed. We do enough, don't we? We Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, all right. Um, we've yapped enough. Uh, people probably came to hear David James Keaton and his... Uh, his uh his kind of style of storytelling so what we got here was something that i also believe has never been heard before or read before because it is from the unpublishable novel which i don't think he mentioned at the reading but spunkwater right that's that's the yeah the it's from what that. what at one point was spunkwater which oh, i think he's um, kind of parceled out into a bunch of different short stories <laughs> he's I think he was talking and, you know, he's had this thing done for, for a long time and he's like, yeah, I just added some changes in last night. So <laughs> it's, it's still, it's very much David James Keaton at heart as it is ever changing. Um, so we're going to let this roll. Uh, absolutely hilarious. Again, very indicative of what you'll read in Dragon by the Dumpster. Should you choose to book up, pick up the copy of the book anthology, if you haven't already. Um, and just uh, here's David Keaton with another great reading. Before we jump to that, I just want to point out that anybody who will remember the wrong kind of reading at the Galloway Arms, the story that Keaton read that evening, Tap, 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 came from the same work and has some of the same characters. So so if you wanted to check out the uh, other story that he reads in the same location with um, some of the same characters kind of pulled from a different part of the same overall gigantic story, uh, go back and check out episode 75 of Booked. It's uh, Keaton's episode from the wrong kind of reading of the Galway Arms, and you'll get some more of those great characters as well. So I, I received a text from Livius earlier, uh, just a moment ago, who reminded me that um, this will be on the internet, and if you're listening to it on the internet, obviously you know this. So, so far... Um, there, there hasn't been enough vulgarity, and we might get it taken off of the internet. So, uh, and also, I have to pinch the uh, booked uh, anthology to everyone really hard. So, for those of you uh, here, I know you all got a copy. You either bought one or received one for you know participating, uh, <laughs> or you know being in booked. Uh, you know. Um, so for everyone at home, if you don't think that paying less than a dollar for the 25 great authors that are in this anthology, you are an asshole. <laughs> uh, that comes from me. Uh, so order your copies immediately. Um, or, you know, like if you don't listen to this podcast right away, you, you have an excuse. But anyway... Um, Speaking of the book podcast, Rob, uh, how many of you guys listen to book? Oh, man. So, uh, great. Okay, so a couple episodes ago, Rob brought up the episode that I guested on and, and said that I, I said, Whale's Tale? Uh, I might have. It might have happened. 
I didn't go back and listen. It might have been a mistake, but basically it was a mistake. But I was thinking about it, and if we were going to make a House of Leaves uh, adult film called Whale's Tale, it definitely would have the tagline, it's bigger on the inside. But uh, speaking of books, our next and final reader is probably logged in more hours as a guest than anyone else in book history. Uh, including the episodes where Livius is actually a guest and not a co-host. Um, you should read the bylines on the episodes. Rob sneaks that in. <laughs> he doesn't want to give him too much credit. But anyway, uh, this next man, he turns $2 into $4. He's David James Keaton. Uh, Keaton's fiction has appeared in over 50 publications. He's won a Best Short Story on the Web Spine Tingler Award for his contribution to Crime Factory Number 8. And his collection, Fish Bites Cop, Stories to Bash Authority, was released on May, uh, it released in May 2013. He lived next to a crazy guy who swore he was in Three Dark Night. I think that's every guy that he lived next to, uh, even though that would make it four dark. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the friend to everyone who isn't an authority figure, Mr. David James King. Alright. Alright, so this is the last, the last reading of the night, so I figured by now you wouldn't want to meet any new characters, that you wouldn't want to have to get to know anybody and endure a story. The last person has a tough time keeping your attention. So this is going to be, I have an unpublishable novel. And this is, um, I mean, that's what they tell me. <laughs> unpublishable, that's what the letters keep saying. Uh, it's, um, it has a 140-page climax. And so this whole reading is going to be from the 140-page last scene. And when I say climate, the last scene is 140 pages. Um, so this is a piece of the last scene. So you have no context. I, I could tell you what's going on. If you listen to the last book reading, it's the same couple of characters. But they're up to other stuff. Plus I added stuff last night. So, um, anyway, we'll just get started. At the playground, Officer Bigby finally radioed for help. After staring at the baffling contraption around the dog's neck for a good six minutes, then he unsnapped his holster for the first time in his life. He fingered the dangling snap of his weapon absentmindedly and studied the children on the covered slide. He hated those covered versions. Kids got jammed up in there and never came out with any consistency. It drove him nuts. He couldn't believe anyone would allow their kids to play on such a contraption. Once he watched a covered slide in a playground for three hours straight, he could never prove it, but he was pretty sure the same little bastards that were piling into the hole in the top were not the ones shooting out the bottom. <laughs> Meanwhile, Billy, now calling himself Evil Bull Weevil, traced a figure eight in the dust with his dirt bike as he waited at the ramp, as he waited for the ramp truck to line up behind the row of cars heading for the drive-in exit. He counted 25. But since the cars were long ways, that made it more like 60. Evil revved his engine to get their attention and pointed to the tow truck. Hey guys, can you move aside, please? I'm going to jump those cars. They all turned, nodding and smiling, eager to watch, and Evil turned up his headphones to hear his ex-girlfriend Willie's voice in his, ear, in his ears explaining that the noise produced by a single dog park can reach as much as 115 decibels, the equivalent of every car horn, horn under every palm of the angriest cab drivers on earth. 
Hold on, boy, you're going to do what? An old man in a wheelchair started wheeling after him. Right about when a German shepherd blindsided Evil and upended him in his bike into a puddle. Evil gunned it to steady himself. Then the police dog bounded over the loose spinning wheels and went for Evil's arm. Evil was able to turn his handlebars at the last second, and the dog got a mouthful of rubber instead. Biting down, his jaws cranked the gas even harder, sending the bike, Evil, and the dog towards the ramp, a shitload of broken bones and immortality. At the same time, Officer Bigby, who had been laying low and letting the dogs do all the work, suddenly recognized Evil and realized he was about to lose his quarry. So he headed him off on the other side of the slide, then got lucky when the dog distracted him and snagged Evil by the, and Bigby snagged Evil by the face, the thumb finding a nostril and the pinky finding his ear. Bigby started to lift him off his seat and the bike's back tire swerved in protest, losing its grip on the road. Bigby threw an elbow but caught the dog instead. It just chewed faster. Watching the dog, Evil could see what teeth and a little dedication could do. Evil waited until Bigby's forearms started sliding down from the famous chokehold and he aimed for the tattoo, chomping down right, chomping down tight to answer the internal question, how hard is it to bite through bone? It turned out it's the easiest thing in the world, really. That night, Evil discovered that the only reason people thought bones were strong was because people were afraid to bite their own fingers hard enough for them to snap off. Evil found out bones weren't shit. Shit was actually much harder to bite through. <laughs> he bit through three of the cop's fingers, the three good ones the cop needed. And before his teeth sunk in and his mouth overflowed with copper, he imagined Bigby years from now struggling not just to hold his gun, but even to, to make a pretend gun with his hand. A sweaty crowd of screaming spectators, thick as mayflies, grabbed at his head, his arms, his new favorite dog. A little boy tried to climb onto his seat, and Evil caught the child's face in his hands and yelled, Ron, kid, tell everybody, the police training manual to protect and serve man, it's a cookbook. <laughs> then he laughed so hard he choked on it. Now it was just more hands in his mouth, but way too many to eat. And his bike was stopped cold in the dust as they swarmed him, still a good 30 feet from the finish line in that ramp. On the other side of the playground, the cop they called Buckyballs, still stuck tight to Larry's back and was trying for that same L.A. chokehold, stopping fighting for a second to watch the action over Larry's shoulder. Then most of Bucky's head exploded into chowder from the ears on back, christened by Officer Dwayne B. Bigby's first lethal bullet. First any bullet. Then another bullet ripped the child swing, flipped the child swing over it and up like a duck in a shooting gallery. Then another bullet flipped the child. Bigby had all the medals to prove his marksmanship in case anyone ever asked. But while shooting at Evil's disappearing dirt bike, he just discovered what happens when you try to operate a gun through two smallest fingers. It affected some stuff. More gunfire erupted. And at first, Larry thought it was more cops, but the bullets were coming from the cars. Men behind driver's side doors protecting their families, sliding along the hoods like pros from half a decade of Dukes of Hazard reruns, gunfire popping off in all directions, even a compound bow. Larry tried to roll out from under the dead man on his back, and he somehow came up with a 38 special. It had fallen from a holster that one of the officers had unsnapped way too early in the action in a sad attempt at intimidation. From the meager safety of the sandbox, Larry fired back at Bigby, who dove for the covered slide in fear. A shirtless, spike-haired kid trailing popcorn and blood ran between them. And Larry thought what he saw what he thought were tattoos of dog bites all along the boy's ribs. What kind of fucking idiot gets a dog bite tattoo, he thought, <laughs> taking aim. Here, let me draw some bullet holes on you. But the trigger wouldn't budge. The safety was on, so he squirmed like a snake backing out of its skin, and the dead man still hung on a while, 
finally tearing away the last shred of Larry's shirt before he dropped. Larry stood up in the glow of a hundred cars headlights, shirtless and trembling. Everyone could see him now, as well as the images covering his body. He panicked and began scratching long strips of skin free from his shoulders, arms, and torso, like the ragged fringe of the notebook paper, but more like marbled bacon. He stripped layer after layer until he discovered every tattoo that was lurking in his bloodstream. These were mostly movie tattoos that had burst forth inexplicably from Larry's body, shimmering and shifting and taking shape in his seeping wounds. Movie fans would recognize them as tattoos from their favorite flicks. Every one of them scribbled in washable ink since there was no commitment to body art in the fiction of films. Once upon a time, these markings buried inside Larry's trunk had been drawn on the shanks of actors by men and women with no dedication to the reality of the moment. But now in this scene, with no explanation at all, they had stained Larry's skin forever. He wasn't too surprised. It was the usual suspects crawling on his epidermis, but this time he knew their real names. It was Kurt Russell's cobra on his belly, last seen in Escape from New York, now doing battle with Nick Nolte's devil tongue from the prison musical Weeds. Rows of Mel Gibson's Z's from the bounty covered the ridge of Larry's collarbone, where his knuckles, Robert Mitchum's, Mitchum's infamous love and hate from Night of the Hunter, of course, rubbed and rubbed like they were trying to start a fire. Even Alex Jodorowsky's huge eagle had landed, now draped across his chest like, like it was in the import Santa Sangra, a movie where a violent primitive tattooing ritual was quite convincingly faked. A geisha and a dragon from a Chinese New Year parade rode across Larry's back, just like the one Maude Adams had to endure against her will in the movie Tattoo. And death tickled his toes, the same toes that Vince Gill stabbed the gas pedal with when he portrayed a surprisingly easily rattled Mad Max villain. Nicholas Cage and Randall Tex Cobb's Mr. Horsepower logo from Raising Arizona made an appearance. The same bird that still got confused for Woody Woodpecker on a daily basis. That's not Woody Woodpecker in Raising Arizona. Everybody that. <laughs> Two of them actually, smiling high and proud over Larry's bicep and his black heart. Circling Larry's spine were Rod Steiger's lions and rockets and Mars, oh my, still glistening like they did in that film where they'd clearly just been applied about five minutes earlier in the makeup trailer for the illustrated man. A splattering of black ink surrounded something called book podcasts along the forearm. <laughs> Looking like an angry rash. But it was fucking weird because podcasts weren't even invented for another 20 years. <laughs> and finally on Larry's shoulder there was even a tattoo of tattoo on the shoulder of a tattoo of Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> I actually can get think about it made sense if you saw it. Larry was dead center in the burn of 200 headlights now with all that crazy shit all over his body, dramatically clicking off the safety of his weapon, but still wasn't enough to keep everyone's attention when the girl entered the spotlight. At any drive-in built in the 70s, the cement bunker that housed the projector was kind of like a real bunker. And because the beam was so low to the ground, some places put up barbed wire to stop you from stuffing something into those flickering peepholes. Just like they stopped the Allies in Normandy from stuffing something into those machine guns. And until they started making what the drive-in veterans called a glory hole, higher up and off the ground, if you were the kind of kid that wasn't afraid of getting your clothes torn or leaving a little bit of blood in your popcorn, you could hop a fence and walk face first into the firefight, 20,000 lumens of blazing lighthouse to be exact. And you would effectively disrupt everyone's movie. Hell, you could make giant shadow animals in that beam if you had the balls. And that's exactly what she had, and that's exactly what she did. The last projectionist looked up. It was a naked girl, and she was overshadowing the other naked girls on the screen. 
The last movie Larry had given him to roll was probably Larry's best film, but to everyone at the drive-in that night, it would have looked as unremarkable as interchangeable oceans of skin, fucking away their indifference on a monolith that was grayer and bigger than the one that educated the apes in 2001, only this monolith was laying on its side with nothing left to teach us. And something weird was happening with Bully's shadow dancing in front of all this. Although an Amtrak-sized cop was leveling, steadying, and getting prepared to penetrate an asshole the size of the largest production trunk, a 2000 Pontiac Grand Prix, by the way, Bully's shadow somehow made these alarming images acceptable, reasonable, oddly touching, poignant, all words that Larry dreamed as blurbs one day adorning his movie posters. But Bully wasn't really naked, it just seemed that way, with all the light shining through her as she spinned around. Out of the playground, knee-deep in battle, she seemed especially naked to Larry, who pretty much saw the world as naked anyway. Larry had seen so many people in the nude that he was like a walking, talking exercise in imagining that hypothetical naked classroom in order to feel more relaxed during a presentation. Except it was just the opposite with Larry. When filming pornography, you had to imagine people wearing clothes when you needed to focus. But this was not necessary with Bully. Larry could see her body as, as covered in ink as his own. He was in love. During his career, Larry had worked around pointless portraits on people's bodies before, album covers, dead nephews, marginally famous people. But as he strode through the headlights and exhaust fumes towards her, gun now swinging impotent at his side, this giant naked girl seemed to be covered utterly with a cast of second-tier supporting actors. That was weird. When she spun around, twirling and dancing in the spotlight, it was like an entire yearbook of variety second fiddles were adorning her back with their earnest, put me in your movie faces. Larry imagined a roll call for their feature film, awesome when they're angry character actors stuck in an elevator. It was Ronnie Cox, James Spader, John Polito, Brad Dorf, Fred Ward, David not Keith David, Keith, and vice versa, Donna Moffat, Brian Dennehy, Michael Ironside, William Atherton, with Terry O'Quinn as the voice of reason, coming soon to the bottom shelf of a video store near you. All men in psychodramas, Larry noted, then unable to shake his old pornography recruiting habits. So she's got daddy issues? But those guys weren't alone on her body. Larry could see she was also covered in movie titles, too. Every horror flick that had a baby in it. All the movies that Bully had watched from her window, like someone watches an airplane taillight blink across the sky, but Larry couldn't know this, of course. He was just amazed how complete her collection was of baby movies. Mostly 70s stuff like Rosemary's Baby, Basket Case 1, 2, and 3. Rosemary's Baby 2? What? She had a sketch of the It's Alive crib across her ribs, of course, because those words rhymed. It was American Gothic, which looked more like the poster for the 74 movie, The Baby. That short-lived trend of having full-grown assholes acting like infants. But hey, she had that poster too, right by her hip. That movie used to make Larry furious until he realized it was far easier than training children to act. When he was a legitimate filmmaker, he eventually learned that children had no business working with adults. Was there any other profession in the world besides film where you let a fucking child do the job? No. He trusts a child as an air traffic controller before you allow one in front of his camera. Which is why the parade of bleach blonde moppets from Village and Children of the Dam across her belly almost made him gag. And there was the old four sheep from Who Can Kill a Child, Chucky from Child's Play Getting Choked Out by Gage from Pet Cemetery, the little princesses from Bad Seed in the Pit all over her shoulder blades, although those kids always looked to Larry to be about 30, the terrifying look who's talking to the scariest of them all, the snowmobile suit wearing beach rage babies from the brood and dangerously close, close to her bathing suit areas, 
people toys, aka Devil's Times Five, otherwise known as House on Horrible Hill, or its original title, Tantrums. Oh shit, Larry thought he could barely make out the squealing limbless thing from a racer head and its dozens of tadpole brothers and sisters. Did she really watch all those movies from a window? He asked a family pressed up against their car's windshield, which made zero sense because there was no way he could know any of this. And all those movies about babies, is her stomach swollen in that shadow or is it just a 50-foot optical illusion? Well, Larry didn't need to ask. He had no doubt that viewing so many movies about killer babies from the comfort of your own bed would eventually knock you up. Luckily, Larry had racked up that year and a half in film school and could recognize such obscure movie references, and maybe this helped him know things he shouldn't. Her body would mean little to anyone else's eyes. He pitied anyone who thought, who saw nothing but skin. Oh yeah, there were tattoos on her thighs too, but not as interesting as Larry in the movies about babies. But revving their engines from bullies' knees on up were cars that are make and model right under some script bridging both knees that shouted, Remember our vets! The fleet was all stacked in formation to lean out their, dri their own driver's side windows and watch the show starting on the tiny black monolith, well, more like a monorail, actually, that was now cruising between her legs. That's where the movie should be. Larry tried to picture her receiving all these tattoos, the artist at the parlor leaning in close with black gloves and the hum of the needle and anticipating exactly what to draw on that tiny black screen down there. Larry was surprised by the movie he saw, and possibly it depicted the exact moment, this exact moment, the naked girl standing on a bunker at D-Day with another tiny screen between her legs and another movie flickering down there too, and another and another, all the way to infinity until they were too small to see without really getting your nose in there like any good director. She tapped an invisible, an invisible microphone to get the crowd's attention, and he was finally angry enough for the first time since the credits. That was his job, not hers. Larry fought harder than he ever had, thought he was capable. He was convinced it was the nakedness that allowed this. Naked people always fought harder, of course, even if his new tattoos had blurred the rules of the game. He turned the 38 back on Bigby, firing three wild shots at the cop as he ducked down under the covered slide where the kids had been crying, and he vanished. Officer Bigby would never be seen alive again. So Larry turned his gun in the shadow of the girl, who held her arms a mile wide, just like the Journey song, showing off the remote control to everyone who was still paying attention to the movie. In Evil, he was still flying a good hundred feet up. He hit the ramp and felt gravity bringing him back down to earth already. So he took his hands off his dog, turned down his music, and opened his shirt to reveal the smeared names and logos of his sponsors. Rivers of magic marker dripping down the sweat of his chest. But could she see him? She had to see him. He was flying, for fuck's sake. Back in the beam, Bully was, had her thumb back on the button, the same thumb that had wrestled evil into submission the first time they met. She saw the second-to-last dog in the world still tied to the slide, surrounded by screaming families scooping up their children. The second-to-last dog had bright lesions on its nose from trying to get out of her car trunk earlier in the day, and she felt a moment of pity, and her thumb wavered. Then she saw a little girl yelling and running towards the animal, shouting a word indistinguishable to everyone but Bully, whose veteran drive-in eyes could read her lips easily, something she learned from watching so many movies from 500 feet away. What are the chances of that, she thought, when she deciphered the dog's name. Well, no time for reunions. She pushed the button. Across the parking lot, Evil finally touched ground on the other side. He jumped the cars, and all of them were still honking at him, not just from the violation of the dirt bike jump, but mostly furious they'd been tricked into sneaking their children into a triple feature so vile. When he hit, Evil's front tire caught the last cop who had still been working the traffic jam at the entrance, square in the face, plowing his whistle through four incisors, but even worse, breaking his neck and killing him. 
In fact, instantly, and very soon after that, Evil's new dog, the second to last dog in the world, soon to be the last dog, finally released his grip on the handlebars and slammed into an El Camino. The weight of the dog broke an elderly man's shin, and seeing the dog in distress, dozens of people who knew immediately how movies worked forgot about everything else and even stepped over the dead cop to cradle the dog, weeping and stroking its fur. Evil, he went head through, first through a windshield, body twisting so bad that the first paramedic on the scene would later be confused as to whether or not he'd been driving that Fiero. They weren't really the best paramedics in town with budget cuts, increasing the competition between hospitals and surely not the best at identifying cars. Evil's boombox, however, was thrown free and landed on its feet pretty much unscathed. It kept playing a while, continuing to sing of a more love-struck Billy before he was Evil Bo Weevil, a poor imitation of Evil. Then there was a moment of silence between the screams and tinkling glass, and the crowd looked to the shadow of the girl on the screen, almost ready to ask her what they should do. But the girl was pinwheeling her arms and kicking her legs in wide circles, seemingly swimming between and free of the huge projected thighs. The legs on the screen as big as redwoods bent at the knees and spread up and wide. Her birth came almost instantly after the hazy giants had stopped fornicating, and the crowd was in awe of the miracle of creation. Then, boom! Just as the little, as the little girl touched its tail, the bottom on the collar of the second-to-last dog in the world exploded. This triggered the other explosions, the driving screen came tumbling down, and a cloud of dust had ruptured and rolled over itself like a closing fist, piling onto the playground, right over top of hundreds of bouncing babies, balls of every color, Bully had seen enough movie explosions to know what she was supposed to do now. She turned from the fire and smoke so that it filled the sky behind her like, this, like a spinning, monstrous blood orange. And she walked as slow and calm and stern-faced as possible across the roof of the bunker, like any action star should. She even tried out a new catchphrase. Happy Veterinarian's Day, motherfuckers. <laughs> then a piece of shrapnel caught her in the back of the head, right above the ear, breaking her jaw and upending her into a garbage can full of rotten popcorn. Months later, when they plucked out the 30 spiders stitched across her cranium, she cursed the whole time through her wired smile. As the concrete screen was coming down around him, Larry found himself closer to any movie than he'd ever been before. As a boy, he put his nose to the crackling TV tube and watched images burst into colorful fireworks like a disease under a microscope, but he'd never gotten his nose up against a drive-in screen. Now that he was inside of it, he saw the strange green circulatory system within and recoiled. All those weeds, all those wires, but not too much of a recoil, really. Sort of the recoil you get from the 38 if you stop the bad guy. In other words, manageable. The movie kept rolling, projected onto a storm of rock and debris, projected onto the screaming mob, even projected onto the distant harvest moon when the dust cleared. Larry watched the movie on the lunar surface a while and thought about how you might not need a helmet up there after all. When the smoke lifted a bit, Larry was shocked and excited to see the only thing still standing amid the carnage. It was a dirt bike, engine still hiccuping, pinned upright by something horrible and bleeding, a combination of man, dog, and cop. Two legs good, eight legs bad, Larry thought, remembering animal form. He mounted it, smiling, remembering the e his EMS training across the ocean all those years ago, all those careers ago, when paramedics rode on two wheels instead of four, when he could get to an accident before it even happened. The blast wave ripped the flyer off the teeth of the windshield that held Evil's ribs tight. The hot breeze carried at least half a mile where it rode the heat until it finally stuck slapping and flapping against a tree trunk, miraculously upright. The flyer read, Lost Dog, and answers to Skinny Elvis. After eight hours of sonar and search teams and sifting bloody rocks and blocks of the void where 
Captain Beefheart's spotlight kid driving used to stand. Now more like Beefheart's clear spot, actually. Rescuers discovered... Somebody got the Beefheart reference? <laughs> Sweet. Rescuers discovered that when the stream had come crashing down, the crushed playground was mercifully empty after all. Well, almost empty. After some struggling in the dust, one lone ragged, ragged chunk of concrete flipped over in the rising sun, and the men stepped back to reveal a smoldering, covered children's slime. Now just a twisted lump on the ground, flattened except for the grotesque bulge in the center, like an anaconda that just choked on a pig. Seconds later, a decade earlier actually, 45,000 feet above sea level, a siren warbles as if dying, and a voice crackles on the speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. I regret to inform you that we'll be arriving 15 pages ahead of schedule, and we'll have to cut the in-flight movie short. I can't, however, tell you how it ended. Larry looks around to see how upset everyone is to have the story ruined before they finished it, but no one really seems to care. So here's what happened, the captain continues. The man was punished, the woman was punished, the villain got away with it, the dog, oddly enough, did not survive the explosion. I'm sorry, just a second. The sound of an overspeed alarm was beeping in the cockpit and coming through the speaker. Now the passengers were looking around at each other in shock. You never fuck with a dog in a movie, no matter how you in the film, Larry thinks. Not understanding it, was, it wasn't the, the alarm that was upsetting them. It was the alarm. It was a fucking typo. Not unless you want to lose the audience for good. What did I miss? A passenger on his elbow asked. Well, if you really give a shit about these things, see that guy, Stan? Well, Stan's actually Dan, which means he's Sam all along. Larry was Jerry, meaning Dick was Nick. But if this revelation is muted by the fact that even if DNA can't conclusively prove they're the same person, now they've done all the same things by reenacting their past with more effort than they ever lived in their lives. What movie are you watching? What about Talking Dog? I'm sorry, the captain interrupts. I've been told that our flight path has been rerouted because of the storm. The movie will resume shortly. Did I ruin anything? Sorry about that. I'm glad to see he's trying to redeem himself with law enforcement and his most recent work. So um, that was it. Five authors from out of 25 that appear in the book anthology, which will be available for sale at the back table momentarily. Um, we'd like to thank everybody that came out. Thank you very much. Thank you for your support uh, from the podcast. Uh, we appreciate it. It's been uh, almost two and a half years now, and we wouldn't have done it without uh, a lot of people in this room. So thank you. So before um, before we finish, 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 um, there's one thing we want to talk about that we've been talking about uh, between each other and then some of the authors that we know and we publish in the book. We're going to start a new venture sometime this year, which is um, we're kind of branching out from doing just podcasts. We're going to be doing audio stories. So looking, look forward to sometime, and then also probably toward the end of the year, beginning of next year, something like that. More details, but we're going to actually be publishing um, kind of a, a second podcast, almost uh, like an ongoing series of, of recorded stories. Much like you've heard tonight. Probably from the same five people. <laughs> if we keep asking. So, Alright guys, go buy yourself some books. Um, we're going to be downstairs having drinks afterwards, so if you are so inclined to stay, please do. I don't think they throw us out until like 2 in the morning. Yeah. Thank Alright guys, drive safe.
So here's the great thing about that. Um, the unpublishable novel, because it's, I don't remember what he said, but it's some ridiculous word count. Um, everybody wants him to edit it down. I was like, dude, break it up into a trilogy. He's like, no, you don't understand. This is part of a much bigger work. So it would be like nine <laughs> books if I did that. <laughs> so. Oh, good. Oh, man. But some riotous moments in there. True uh, to form, David James Keaton mentioned, we counted 175 different films in that reading. We didn't actually count, but it felt that way. <laughs> um, here, Here's an interesting thing. So when during Josh Deach's uh, story in the two episodes ago, uh, while he was reading, someone's cell phone went off and he added it into the story he was reading because mm-hmm. he was saying nine of this, nine of this, nine of this. Mm-hmm. And then he said nine rings from a cell phone. And that, and it was great because he just like, he brought it in instead of like it, it interrupting. He just kind mm-hmm. of included it. Now Keaton, at one point of his reading, he was talking about a bunch of different tattoos Mm-hmm. And one of them was a tattoo that looked like a bunch of ink with the word booked podcast on it um, on someone's arm. And I thought that he had just on the fly added that in mm-hmm. because of my recent tattoo. Mm-hmm. I happened to get a hold of the pages from the book from one from his reading that he brought. Mm-hmm. It's actually written in. So when he said he made some changes the night before, I think he wrote in my tattoo as part of that. Very nice. Yeah. See, writers, here's what you need to learn. It's never done. You can always change it. It can be up on Amazon. You can still change it. Yeah, learn from Keaton because the stuff that he adds is always like, he's got some sort of like, he, <laughs> yeah, some people have like a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder. He's got like at least one devil on each side, possibly, <laughs> you know, a, a collection of devils on each side. Because he's always just doing this mischievous stuff. But it always makes yes. it better. I agree. I agree. You know, I ran I ran into where did I run into this? Just so you know, if you do an update to like a Kindle version, like somebody that buys a a, a, a Kindle copy from Amazon can always go back and automatically re-download the latest version. Yeah. I read that somewhere. So you're safe. With Keaton, it's always like getting a new story. Just wait three weeks and go back and re-download it. <laughs> Yeah, if you ever want like Keaton to expand on something, just talk to him about something. And if he finds it interesting, then suggest it should go into a specific story and then he'll update it and then you'll have better stuff to read. It's like writing your own story, kind of. Yeah, but like, yeah. like Instead of like, so like uh, like a lot of times writers have a muse, like the person that inspires them. Like the entire world and all of its mundane shit <laughs> is David Keaton's muse. <laughs> All right. A huge, huge thank you to David James Keaton, Kevin Lynn Helmick, Chris Deal, Richard Thomas, Joshua Allen Deach, and Brayton Cameron. Um, Without you guys, this reading um, would have had one less person, Uh, but certainly would not have been um, what it was, which was an absolutely terrific way um, to debut uh, booked as as a reading. I don't know why I say series yet, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. As a, as a potential entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you to all of the folks who showed up again without you guys. It would have been, uh, it would have been like, a, like our, you know, whatever you would call it, like every quad annual or whatever trip to Buffalo Wild Wings. It basically would have been like that. So thank you to everybody who came out. And huge thank you to our other partners in crime for making the book a reality. 
um, the other authors, obviously, but also Gretchen, uh, our, our cover designer, who just, you know, made it look pretty and not like a crappy Photoshop job. Mm-hmm. And of course, Pelavia, who we owe every ounce of professionalism that came out of this book to her, I'd say. Like, I like, would have to agree. Like Livia said, without Pela, we'd be sending people out like stapled together sheets of paper. Yep. So with a nice cover from Gretchen. So. Yeah. It just would have been stapled on. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Oh, there'd still be red squiggly lines under some of the words. Just something have been terrible. And if you were paying attention, um, nobody should ever have to talk after David James Keaton, which is why we made him read last. But we did try to make an announcement there at the end. If you didn't catch it, that's right. Now that the book thing is kind of done, um, we're moving on to a new project. So in the upcoming months, look for, um, I don't know, it's like audiobooks, but shorter. Yeah, short audiobooks. We wanted to be the first of our kind to make that happen. And by the first of our kind, I mean the first that we know of. Right, the first book review podcast that published a book and then published audio stories on the internet. Yeah, as a podcast kind of thing. Because we don't have enough going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, God, at some point, the announcements are just going to have to be more and more ridiculous. Like, <laughs> we're going to buy an island. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, yeah. The, the book Car Wash, that was another potential idea. We talked about the book Roller Coaster. Yeah, I actually figured out, I mean, physics be damned, I figured out at least how you could have a continuous track that spells out the word booked. Probably everybody would die, but... It's it's at least like theoretically possible. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want to go on that. So I can think of lots of people that I would send on that roller coaster. <laughs> so, yeah. Be wary when you get your invitation to the booked theme park. <laughs> <laughs> just stay on the teacups. That's all I'm saying. Oh, all right. Next up from us will be uh, a review of the now infamous Lost book. Um, Big Egos by S.G. <laughs> Brown. Um, Moral of the story, you can't lose an ebook. God damn it. You know, that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd still like to know what happened to it. But yeah, it's uh, we're recording this um, on Monday night. Time traveling here. You're probably listening to this on like Saturday. But yeah, tomorrow I have to uh, go ahead and order one and then send one to Rob because I feel bad. We were just going to share a paper book. Um, that's where Rob and I sit real close to each other and read the same book at the same time. Um, <laughs> Which pisses Livius off because he reads faster than me. Yeah, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, that's going to be next. So uh, come back next week. Uh, you know, here's the whole thing. Sometimes you're, you're slanted from the get-go. I have yet to go wrong with S.G. Brown, so I'm expecting a, a fun-filled romp for our next episode. And the book's going to be good. Oh... Groner had to go out. Had to go out with your groner. Oh, we were doing so good too. <sighs> All right. Hey, can I throw out one more special thank you? Uh, yeah. Uh, to Craig Wallwork for um, giving us the inspiration for the music you've heard before and after these last three episodes. Um, it would never occur to me to ever do anything with the Rolling Stones, but there it is. There it is. All right, that's going to wrap it up for the three-part booked inaugural live reading booked anthology release event. Uh, episode, bunch of pile of stuff you just listened to. <laughs> That's why Livius titles things with spectacular because I just kind of keep talking. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> until next time, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Then Keep reading. <laughs>